Please request recording permission from the meeting host. Can I have your permission? podcast contains swearing and crap impressions if you don't like swearing or crap impressions this isn't the podcast you're looking for you can go about your business move along hello and welcome to first impressions the podcast that attempts to introduce mimicry and mirth to literature and chat even as they're standing at opposite ends of the room clutching their drinks and avoiding eye contact Today our theme is friendship, particularly male friendship, as I speak to one of my oldest friends. Richard Pye, known to some of the kids he's taught French and German to over the years as the Pie Minister, is quite simply a rock, with rock star credentials that have made themselves apparent in numerous ways over the years, not least through his seminal Mick Jagger impression, All right. That was mine, not his. Maybe you get his later. To his friends, Rich is the unflappable confidant who is always there to help in a crisis. To his family, he is the brilliant dad and loving husband who broke the mould, which is annoying for the rest of us. You need to fix that mould and return it, Rich. So here's some nostalgic chat and tall tales from our boyhood on the Wirral, through Manchester days, days spelt with a Z, of course, and a quieter life in Lancaster, where I'm fortunate to live just down the road from Rich and his family. Rich, a very warm welcome to First Impressions. Very good to see you, Pete. Good to be here. Excellent. Now, if you don't mind, Rich, I'm going to take you back into the past. Um, And I'm going to ask, first of all, I'm going to put you on the spot straight away and ask whether you remember us meeting. We've been friends for an awful long time. What recollections do you have about when and where we met? Well, the only recollection would be in well, what is now year seven, but we call it first year. We were in the same form at school. So I will have turned up in whatever, 1st of September, 1985. Yeah, 1985. I've turned up to class and there's probably a sort of lanky, specky, possibly brief Casey person in the class <laughs> who I imagine would have been you. And you're immediately drawn to that person. Uh not for a few years, probably <laughs> not to about third or fourth year, I think. Initially, I was very wary because you're from a strange place called Hoylake, which did not appeal to my uh, my my area where I was from. Greasby was certainly seen as being a bit of a cut above that. Well, I can understand your nervousness and your trepidation, and of course the long-standing Greasby Hoylake rivalry, which may go back to Viking times, but really, like two or three years. Before, before you were ready to, to communicate with me. I mean, a lot of people will think we went to like a, a stage school or a, a school for the dramatic arts, but we, our school was, um, how would you describe our school, Rich? I would say it was, so obviously having nothing to compare it to is part of the problem. Uh, obviously boys only, so uh, a bit strange in that way. Uh, teachers have probably been there quite a long time, a lot of them. You know, like the head teacher had taught my dad, and I know the music teacher had taught your dad and things. And so there were people who had been exactly. there for a long time. Yeah, uh, a school that was—it used to bang on all the time about how old it was and you know, yeah. six hundred and fifty years old. And it was one that was very big on this sort of well, the tradition. And yeah, the school song. Would you like to sing any of that now, or can you remember? Any I, I, I can remember some of the words. I wouldn't want to sing them, uh, partly because the tune was horrendous. <laughs> uh, it was something like, by Frank B. Green, they ploughed the land, they dug the sandstone from the hill, uh, to dum-de-dum-de-dum-de-dum from Dorpool Deep or something, and then to something the something on Coldy Hill. That's, that's my memory of it. <laughs> it there didn't seem to be a chorus or anything. No, and there wasn't like a sort of John Barnes style rap in the middle or anything. I mean, the song gives you an idea of, um, for people who don't know about the Wirral, um, you get a bit of an idea of both geography and the geology, the sandstone and the hills. And yeah, course, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were from different sides of the tracks. I mean, they weren't, tra- you know, well, there were train tracks, but they were all. No, we are literally different sides of that train track. Different <laughs> sides of those train tracks. And there's sort of yeah. me and Chin and Matt on one side, mm. and you and Davo and, and Hakes 
Steve Haycox, of course. And when we started socialising a bit more, I suppose that would have been when we were, what, about 14 or 15, maybe? Once we got to about fourth or fifth year, I think that's when we probably started doing a bit more together. And then obviously our shared love of American football. I also knew of you, or I think as I was getting to know you, my parents had been to the school to watch a play in which your brother had starred, Martin. Yes. And they said how amazing he was. And you followed in his footsteps, really, went in drama. By doing that GCSE drama, yeah, I did in a lot of ways. Well, I I mean, probably my speciality became the, the dead body character. That was probably what I am best known for in the drama community. I, I never I never saw it, Rich, but I heard it was great. And I heard, I was listening to Glenn Close on the Mark Maron podcast and, and she was talking about Kevin Costner doing similar, apparently. And he was, <laughs> he was great when they started out. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I, don't, I never actually made it to be on stage, I don't think. I think it was purely in those sort of, you know, rehearsals. I probably set the play in motion and things, but it never actually made it onto the big, the big stage or the big screen. You were the dramatic crux, or yes, the, the plot, yeah. the, your plot device. But but you basically, yeah, but a very good one. And you you, you passed the drama. You got the City drama. I got a C, which just goes to show it was <laughs> a very easy GCSE. Uh, <laughs> I would recommend it to anyone who wants to do G- easy GCSE without any effort drama was the one it probably isn't now it probably it's complete pain to do now you're going to do all sorts of <laughs> essays but we had to do nothing like that it was very easy well i'm i was it was a good it was a good choice rich because i did art and i was i was pretty much humiliated by <laughs> by the art teacher just because i happened to draw a massive yin and yang symbol on a football pitch which i think was a very deep sort of message i was trying to put across there about Oh, definitely. I can see that. But you just that's the, the curse of being an artist, isn't it? Just being misunderstood by everyone. Constantly. Yeah. Over, over and over. Yeah. I mean, I was in the, in the House Music Festival that time when Steve Hakes, shout out to Steve, was in a barrel performing poetry at the same time. Yeah. He was playing bass. Did you catch that? Did, were you, did you witness that? Through we your, did through go your fingers, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, that sort of time was the first introduction to live music, which obviously inspired our, our roots that we organised. Could you describe what the, the rut was exactly? Well, I, I'm surprised. I would, there can't be many people who haven't heard of it, really, because it was just the event of 1990 or 1991. It, it, it is just anyone you meet on the street in Hoylake or Greasby or anywhere <laughs> in the world, and you say, do you remember the rut? The chances are they will say yes. It was. It's one of those events like Woodstock, <laughs> I, think, I think we were in it was obviously that, that was the time we had to go down to the cottage hospital wasn't it so r- to get out of doing games in sixth form we could do this community service thing couldn't we yes we went to the cottage hospital and sort of hung around <laughs> doing very little helping no one and not entertaining old people in any way uh and we probably just wandered the streets of Hoylake for two hours or something but we did agree to do some fundraising for them. Yes. And we came up, uh, I think it was just me, you, Matt and Chin, probably, I guess the four of us came up with the idea of the ruts and probably Matt came up with most of it. I don't know. I think uh, so. Which was a music festival at, I don't even know which church it was, a church in Hoylake. And... Well, it was the United Reformed Church. Okay. No, I only know, I only remember that because they made, I, we put up posters in all the shops in Hoylake and then, 
because I'd abbreviated United Reform to UTD Reform, and because I'd also put things on the posters like have your children now to avoid their future <laughs> disappointments at missing this event. And surprisingly, the church were not so keen suddenly to be linked to this music festival. So mm. I remember that that was the church because very quickly those posters disappeared, which explains why right. there wasn't as many thousand people there as we were expecting. It um, only had a minor impact on the audience, I think. I think we had attracted them all by that point. The one band was Dionysus Apollo. I think we managed to get them. They were our big headline ticket. Apart from them, I've got really no idea who else played. I think we had Chin's cousin, um, Steve Savile, played with his right. band. And okay. they were very good. I think they were very brass heavy. Now, my memory is by that point, we were hiding in the back because, yes. <laughs> because the audience... I mean, the thing is, when you ask people on the world where... You know, can you remember what you were doing at the time of the rut? They're quite likely to say, well, yeah, I was I was not being at the rut. Because <laughs> the once the bands <laughs> realized that that the number of you know that the, the number of people in the bands was often outnumbering the number of people <laughs> in the audience. <laughs> I think especially with Steve Savile's band, I think there was about eight in that band, all playing saxophones. They'd come with a van at great expense. Yeah, I do remember and I remember the Dionysus Apollo guitarist just sat on the edge of the stage at the end, just gently weeping, being consoled by his girlfriend. <laughs> I hate to say this, but possibly part of the problem was that maybe we didn't quite promote it as well as we could have done. Yeah, I think it was that lovely time in your life where it's like everything's very idealistic and then we would have watched Woodstock, the video or something, and just thought, this is easy. <laughs> I think the problem was also because we all had pretty long hair at that time, so it's difficult to see what was going on a lot of the time. happening around that time i mean that was when we started going to gigs perhaps or we started uh, to i don't know 1991 was it the uh, place in birkenhead oh it was club. called atmosphere oh. i believe atmosphere. Was yes see, i think that was about the limit you were a pretty good sport because i guess you were already listening to neil young and so on and yet you were also prepared to go to descend the pink staircase to the atmosphere dance floor as dry ice you know, yeah. was, was swooshed up your farers. What what were we thinking? I suppose we were just so excited to be out and stuff, however cheesy the club. So our limited experience of Greasby and Hoylake was just the pub yeah. and uh, beaches and golf courses. Really, it was about our, our nightlife. That's basically what it encompassed, wasn't it? Open space. So to be able to go, yeah, yeah, wide open spaces where we could drink our four cans of uh, it's called Heldon Brown. <laughs> Heldon Brown, maybe a bottle of cider for yourself, Rich. Merry Down, a bit of Merry Down, yes, that was always good. Uh, and if you couldn't, if no one's house was available, that was the limit. So going yeah. somewhere like Birkenhead or even going to Liverpool was a big adventure. I do remember Birkenhead being a complete pain to get back from. So we were probably, I reckon, if we went to Atmosphere, we'd have probably left by about. <laughs> before 11 I reckon because that's probably when the, my last bus would have been so we were, we would have been the first people in there it would just have opened and we would be the only people there 
just about able to get in because you know we, we were only 17. Uh, yeah. We'd been the first people there and we'd be leaving just as it would be getting interesting. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> so, we had to get back because it was too far. You couldn't walk back from Birkenhead. And the, the thought of a taxi to us in those days was just no. That's no. Impossible. No. Taxis were just an unbelievable luxury. Birkenhead and Liverpool were too far away. You know, to just like yeah. you said, trying to get back was impossible. You couldn't walk through the Mersey Tunnel, which me and Matt tried to do <laughs> one time. We got stopped. <laughs> we were like, we'll buy a ticket. It's like, you can't come through. Um, we had house parties. And, you know, famously, well, I think after one party, you got the blame or a bit of damage that may have taken place. I mean... But I'm you not, just put the blame on me because I lived in Greasby. <laughs> you'd, you'd never be tracked down. And of course, you'd never, we'd never be friends like, you know... Yeah, we, we were just chips <laughs> in the night and there's no way you'd like become friends with my parents and everything like that and and no, very him, improbable but officially on the record you're denying that the, the damage was was yourself i'd deny all not of breaking any furniture at your house excellent <laughs> i didn't say it was furniture so oh okay okay Let's move on to a, a bit of a contrast with the Wirral, really. When you went off to university, you went to Manchester, as well as, as, well as studying in Europe. How did you find Manchester after, after Greasby, after the Wirral? <laughs> it's, it's a very similar place in a lot of ways, Greasby and Manchester. There's very little to tell them apart, apart from the hundreds of thousands of people, the bars, the pubs, the nightclubs, the transport. Uh, the violence <laughs> so yeah it was a completely different world and i ended up in didsbury so we lived in the halls in didsbury that's where i met ben who we still keep in touch with and various other people we met there so that was interesting so living in manchester was a big a big difference and manchester back then <clears throat> wasn't really as <sighs> it wasn't as trendier place at all really mm. i mean okay you had the stone rose and stuff that but it was a bit grimy yeah you know it felt a bit run down at times Did yeah you... yeah the, the punks hanging around you had the goths hanging around at the uh you had all these sort of old-fashioned nightclubs with a goth nightclub and remember the rock world one with all the rockers and it was all a bit yeah. a bit different you had all sorts of different stuff so back in 92 it wasn't quite you can't really compare it to now. Yeah. You certainly didn't have all the posh restaurants and skyscrapers and stuff. They weren't around. We got broken into once in the second year. Uh, yeah, things like that made it feel a little bit on the slightly unsafe side. But I personally was all right. But yeah, I remember Danny, he got mugged going to Laundrette once. <laughs> he had absolutely oh, nothing on him. They didn't oh, nick his clothes, but, uh, <laughs> but he had to give me. You had to give him like the two pound he had for the washing machine. But yeah, Manchester, Manchester was good. And obviously, I mean, I, I've been to living near Liverpool. I've been to Liverpool plenty of times. So it was comparable to that in terms yeah. of the big city centre and stuff. Back in yeah. Manchester in those days, it was definitely more sort of segregated that you had the student nights and you had other nights. I, I reckon now Manchester, obviously not having been back for quite a while, mm. you wouldn't, it wouldn't be that same feeling of these dodgy clubs as much. You kind of always felt, no, I wouldn't go to Piccadilly 21 on a Saturday because it's not student night. You're going to get beaten up. And, you know, it, I don't think that's quite the same anymore. I think there's so many different places to go to that are just yeah. open to everyone, really. Yeah. You don't have to be a yeah. student. You can be anyone. And because Manchester yeah. has now got all these young, trendy people there anyway, the students, that's what a student looks like now, anyway, isn't it? Students look young and trendy. Whereas, yeah. I, I mean, maybe speaking, probably just speak for me here, Pete, but. I don't know if we really looked young and trendy when we were at university. That's a very controversial statement, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> we looked kind of, well, yeah, yeah, of our tri of our tribe. I mean, I guess I, I wanted to be Jarvis Cocker. You had your played shirts, and you and you know you were you definitely sort of a grungy look that was very in at the time, you know, and and yeah, I, definitely. I would be all second-hand yeah, yeah. clothes and stuff like that. I suppose we didn't we didn't have the money certainly to sort of splash on 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 making us look fancy. No clothes. I never bought clothes. <laughs> I can't <laughs> think when I'd ever buy. I basically had the same shirt for my whole time at university. I think I, I probably had a selection of four or five shirts, 
a couple of the things and I just wore them all the way through. Yeah. And then every so often I'd get something new at Christmas or birthday, something new would turn up and Yeah. That, well, that's a statement that in itself, good. really. Do you feel now like a sort of do you feel like an affinity for Manchester and stuff? Do you do you feel like still connected either with Manchester or where, or with Charlton where you know you kind of lived where we lived after after mm. university days? Probably more with Charlton, really, because Manchester was it's just changed so much the city centre. Definitely Charlton is, is where most of my memories are nowadays. Massacre at the Charlton Poetry Festival, two thousand and eight. Don't look at me like that. I've never used a microphone before. Don't like feedback? Me neither, so please shut up and laugh when I tell you. And yes, I know I'm not funny. I thought it was poetry, but I see you're expecting stand-up. Well, I didn't ask to go on last. In fact, I asked the organisers to move me down the bill, but I was ignored, wafted away with a dizzying perfume of good intentions, come to naught like every damn event disorganised so charmingly in this ever-so-endearing, not-so-secret glade. Well, I live in the city centre now, and I'm not endeared. All I know is it cost me more by bus than a taxi used to to get me here, and I've spent over a tenner on booze and told all my friends to come here and support me, and they've had to sit for hours listening to shameless charlatans going overboard, over the top, over time, promoting their self-published paperweights of purple prose good to no one but their mothers. And I know it's okay because they're local, but geez, do I really want to be cool in the way of the wannabe Dylan who wears his cowboy hat in the supermarket? and carries an empty guitar case around where my bag is full of squash rackets and shotguns and fresh new hate. Yes, I know I'm probably nervous, but that's good. Better than becoming convinced they're hanging on your every word for any other reason than they're drunk or you're a young, sexy college girl talking about meeting men on benches. And my friends aren't much better, come to think of it. Yes, I appreciate your whoops, but didn't you steal my place on the football team and you, my girlfriend, and you, my best friend, and you, my last cigarette, and you, my stash, and you, by marrying and having those beautiful kids, my plan for us all to live like penniless bohos in interim bedsits forever. And these bloody poems already history, the fine fair faces of the audience suggest, and I half suspect they are confusing me with the other ancient residents past and present up here, forever writing about their fragile fricking youth instead of working out what's wrong with them before they die. We'll sod you all. I've got enough ammunition to shoot every glass from every hand. See you in hell. Is that funny enough? Did that make you laugh? Well, why didn't you put me on a little earlier then, genie I? If I hadn't bought a return, I'd hijack the 86 home and crash it into the corner house. You know, talking of music and everything, we've been to uh, Glastonbury together and then Kendall calling together, of tea in the park and elsewhere. Yeah. Held it together fairly well. I mean, you have particularly. Something about Glastonbury that always amazes me is there was one night we got separated. We went. To, we saw. We were watching Orbital. I'd had enough by that point, and I just thought I'd go to bed. So I, I made it back to the tent, leaving you. You found your way back to the tent without any glasses and yes. with a sock or something. I can't. What was it? Did you get hold? Did someone swap your glasses? Your glasses for a sock? It was a pair of socks, to be fair, and and a pair yeah, of glasses. I think they might have done that, but I came round. I didn't know anything. And I don't know if it's just the next morning I woke up and you were there. It's like, oh, all right, well done. <laughs> I don't think I probably wouldn't have woken up in the night. <laughs> no, we were pretty far gone. It was interesting, wasn't it? Going going to the Kendall Calling one years later, we were a bit more, a bit more. Yeah. Sense. It was a bit less chaotic, and I think it was nice because of that. It was a bit a lot more chilled out. Definitely. I mean, Glasgow was so big. Uh, the yeah. amount of walking we did, and it was, well, at least for some of it, it was boiling. I just, vaguely remember sort of having some sort of heat stroke just because we were walking around so much in the in the sun yeah and you know probably not eating or drinking very well and exactly. i just remember at one point feeling awful i think there's a picture of me looking all sort of red and puffy eyes and stuff like, oh dear that doesn't look good <laughs> whereas kendall calling was just a big mud bath wasn't it it was um, <laughs> and we're getting hosed down at the end of it at the train station it was a well, yeah. you, you just wore a pair of New Balance trainers all the time, which yeah. were just, with no grips on them, you just yeah. sliding around all those things. I had <laughs> thought I was well prepared by bringing some boots, but I know that these sort of walking, which were, at one point they were waterproof walking boots. They had a hole in them, in a sole oh, somewhere. God, and by yeah. the end of the first day, or I think it was the second morning, 
when I put my foot in them, it's like, hmm, yeah. it's a bit weird. One of them was really tight. Yes. And a bit heavier than the other one. And what had happened is all this mud had just got into the boot and gradually yeah. made its way round, all the way round the foot in these sort of inside lining. <laughs> so that one boot was twice the weight of the other. And it was just a soggy, horrible mess. Oh, it was horrible. Uh, and it, it was just a mud bath at, at times there, wasn't it? The war of attrition. It's like you your trench foot or something. You're yeah. just dragging your massive foot along, your big your big foot. Yeah. I, was, I was just skating and falling on my arse repeatedly. Um, yeah, oh, it was just... Yeah, it was good fun though. I did enjoy that. We saw some good stuff. And, uh, and that's some nice people. Just showing about the weather, wasn't it? it we was did bit... meet some of the pies, do you remember? Yes, your name was from Wigan or somewhere. Scamsdale or somewhere like that. He was from that's that sort right. of neck of the woods. Andrew. Some kids Andrew. from school saw me. Yeah. Because was... you were just telling the story of how some kids from school had seen me going, it's Pie, it's Pie. And he said, oh, you call Pie? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He said, oh, I've never met some of the pie before. <laughs> like, oh, okay, brilliant. So that was, uh, that was a good one. Quick. Save. Such kind blue eyes. Nice words on the checkout. She throws him the bag with a frowning yawn, knowing such small contempt will be forgotten by tomorrow. His black tinged with grey, his children in pyjamas, grubby with sleep and play. Little loving daughter loads his cider bottles as he pays with a wink. Quick, save. Such kind blue eyes, nice words on the checkout. Quick. She throws Save. him the bag with a frowning such yawn. Such kind blue eyes, knowing such nice small words on the checkout, will be forgotten. Quick, she throws tomorrow. him the bag Save. with a frowning yawn. His black, such kind blue eyes, small, his children's words on the checkout. Grubby, she throws him the bag with a frowning yawn. His black, little loving grace, knowing such small contentions, will be forgotten. Grubby, sleep tomorrow in clay. Little loving daughter, loads his children in pajamas. Grubby, with sleep and play. Little loving daughter loads his cider bottles as he pays with a wink. Rich, you, you were a getaway driver for the Germans at some point uh, whilst living in Manchester. Could you explain how this happened and what it was like? Yeah, so basically I was responsible for Germany winning Euro 96. I just finished university and yeah, done the finals. I was just sort of hanging around one day and there was a sign up on the notice board saying that uh, the German FA would like some someone with a driving license who can speak German to help in Euro 96. And I thought, mm, okay, let's do that. Wrote off, got a reply back within a week or so and uh, went to Main Road, I think it was, to to meet this guy. Just don't know who he was. And he just said, hello. Just said, all right, okay, yeah, I think you've got the job. I come back in a week and we'll get the cars. And I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the one issue you've got here is it was basically to be a driver for the, for the FA whilst Germany were based at Manchester for Euro 96. Okay. Obviously, I had passed my driving class, my driving test. That was the main thing, but I hadn't actually driven anywhere in the previous <laughs> three, four years, whatever it was. So that did, you know, that gave me some worry because basically all I knew of Manchester was bus routes. And <laughs> those were bus routes going up and down Wilmslow Road. So not really going anywhere else. So I met up with my mate Danny. We hired a car for a day. Yeah. I sort of knew what they'd be doing. I knew they were going to be based at Main Road and I knew Old Trafford as well had been playing. So I did a bit of practice just driving around the roads of Manchester between <laughs> Main Road and Old Trafford. Uh, and then that, that, that was it. I thought, okay, I could probably do this. Yeah. And then whatever it was, next day, met this guy. We got driven to Stockport, I think it was, where to pick up these Mercedes cars. All left-hand drive brought over from Germany. Wow! And then drive that back to where I lived in Withington and parked this quite nice Mercedes outside. <laughs> it wasn't exactly dodgy where I lived, but it was a bit out of place, I'd say. And from then on, for the next two or three weeks, I was uh, just you turn up at Main Road every morning, or naturally no, I'd pick up the staff who worked at Main Road, yeah. who were mainly sort of involved in selling tickets to the German fans. Uh-huh. pick them up from their hotel near the airport drive them to main road and then i'd just be expected to do jobs throughout the day so it could be you know go to go to the hotel pick up yeah. such and such and take them to 
this other hotel where the families were staying. So it could be things like that. So I was basically a, a taxi driver for various different footballers or just picking up stuff and taking stuff between places. Wow. But this was pre-mobile days. So you had, I was relying on my A to Z and, you know, roadmaps and just, you just have to hang around until someone needed you. The good thing was you get tickets, you know, you just got let into the games. So whenever Germany were playing, I'd get a free ticket. And then after the game, they had, they always had this uh, sort of function at main road where they'd get, you know, a bit of food, drink, uh, mainly involving the sort of officials and they'd talk about the game they'd have a little thing about the game and you'd have a bit of a food bit of feed uh so that was always nice as well i mean this was one of the main things i got loads of free food out of this <laughs> as well as getting paid and then various things you know, had to drive yeah carl heinz rumeniger and giovanni trapattoni to aston villa to villa park to watch who was it switzerland against scotland i think yeah, Switzerland against Scotland because Karl Heinz Rummenigge was he's always been quite high up in Bayern Munich and Trapattoni was the manager of Bayern Munich. So they wanted to mm. watch one of the players, can't remember who it was now, but one oh, of the players nice. playing for Switzerland. And that was a nightmare because I had to go and pick Trapattoni up from the Holiday Inn in the middle of Birmingham. I mean, <laughs> bear in mind, I had only driven for about a week or two just randomly around Manchester and suddenly had to drive to Birmingham find the hotel they didn't tell me where the hotel was oh, oh no. it was a nightmare got there eventually just about on time but i had to sort of dump the car right. well they wouldn't you couldn't get that close to the stadium so i had to just let out trapattoni and rumenigger and they walked <laughs> they walked to the stadium uh whilst i was desperate trying to find somewhere to park brilliant but they didn't seem to mind they, they seemed quite nice about it yeah uh, just chuck them out yeah. and yeah yeah I mean, I can't believe it. Thinking about it now, you wouldn't just get some random student to be doing that, would you? But anyway, I did. When Germany qualified for the next round, they stayed in Manchester. Yeah. I think it was probably just the semi-final that they, they went away somewhere else. I know the semi-final was against England, wasn't it? So I got, actually got a ticket for that game against England. Had to stand in the German end at Wembley, which was well, all right. I didn't mind that. You were pretty <laughs> much already... <laughs> you'd, you'd pretty much chosen your side, Rich, by then, by the sounds of it. Yeah. Once you had, had that no first huge... fight of uh, or whatever it was at the um, Fox <laughs> do, I mean, you were... Yeah, working for the enemy would be a bit strong. Working for the rivals would be more accurate. But um, mm. how amazing, Rich. But was there a connection with the, with the Manchester bomb as well? Is that right? Was that... Yeah. Your... Well, that was... It just went off mid... Okay, probably the second week or something. I think it was a Saturday. Yeah, pretty certain it was a Saturday. It was a nice day. I remember we were just hanging around, like we quite often had to do. We were just waiting at Main Road to be told to do something. Yeah. And we we had a policeman who worked there with us the whole time because uh, there was lots of money floating around at this place because people were paying mm. tickets in cash. And obviously Main oh, Road, okay. where it was then, was a rather dodgy area. So we had this policeman with us. And he suddenly yeah. said, oh, I've listened to this and got his radio out. And he said, he says, oh, they've got gold command on, which means there's something really serious happening. Right, wow. Uh, and you could, and he said, oh, I think there's something to do with a bomb or something. And you, you could listen into the, we're listening to the police radio. <laughs> you could hear someone oh, go, right, move out the area, move out the area. You could hear this policeman like shouting down the radio. Oh, my God. And then you, you heard him go, shit. And then you heard the bomb. And then, because we were a bit away from the town centre. Yeah. You know, you saw the smoke come up and then you heard it. Really? Wow. Several seconds later. So it was a weird one, that. Yeah. That's bizarre. Yeah, it was a post box on that road. Is it Cross Street? I don't know. That runs between the Arndale and St Anne's Square, right where the Royal Exchange is. So there's a post box. I'm sure it was in the post box. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it completely redesigned the centre of Manchester. It it was pretty grotty. Before then, I remember it being, because that pub that moved, was it Sinclair's? Sinclair's, which, yeah, yeah. Being in sort of this concrete area. That's right. M&S next to it. And so that just got blown yeah. up. Well, the pub didn't get blown up, but that whole area just got redesigned. Basically. In Manchester, yeah. I knew it was after the bomb. And I think when we'd go yeah. around the city together, you'd point out how it had all changed. There's a sort of bridge, I seem to remember, mm-hmm. a concrete bridge that got yeah. flattened and that whole area down yeah. the bottom of the Arndale. So that was basically where it all got redeveloped. So that was definitely... Mm. Yeah, a very strange experience. 
And then wow. obviously, I think the football game went ahead. I'm sure it was that same day that they played yeah. Italy. And obviously, all the German fans amazing. must have been worried. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. I there. mean, the, the way the way it sort of, I don't know if that would have happened now, or I mean, it's hard to know. But they just continued with with the game. I mean, it's it seems bizarre, and you know, the fact that yeah, overseas fans were there and everything. And the mm. whole, you know, the city centre was taken out, I suppose, mercifully, there were no injuries. No, everyone's OK, weren't they? Yeah. You know, but what, mm. what a surreal event, Rich. The whole thing was surreal, really, thinking about yeah. it. Just having to, yeah, doing the work, getting paid for it, getting to watch all those games, meeting, you know, some famous players and just then hanging around at the end of the day after a game with various officials. And yeah, yeah it, was, it was a crazy few weeks. Well, Rich, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experiences years, a few years later, really, when you were teaching French and German and, and became a teacher. Now, we've had Guy on the podcast who's a teacher under a lot of pressure at the moment. I know recently you've kind of eased off and done supply teaching, kind of substitute teaching. How many years were you teaching for, Rich? 2005 till 2019, so 14 years. It's a long time. How would you describe your experiences as a teacher? the highs and the lows well it's it's a very different experience from what you'd imagine it would be because you just imagine you're just you know you just think about the teaching side of it of t- standing up in front of the kids which you know i suppose that's probably not that much different from what you'd think it would be although y- your issue is that you're obviously enthusiastic about your subject they are not always so enthusiastic yeah. about <laughs> learning german should we say so I would say, you know, generally just accept the fact that maybe only about a quarter of the class are actually that interested in learning right. German. Yes. But it's all the other stuff that you don't really expect that, that, that sort of makes the job a bit different from what you'd, you'd think it would be to, when you begin. It's all the yeah. extra meetings. It's all the yeah. It's all the stuff like appraisals and training that you've got to do in the and suddenly your, your school will say, oh, we want you to do this. You have to do this in every lesson. And yeah. then you need to do this sort of activity in every lesson. Yeah. And you, you don't really expect that. You don't, you don't normally, you don't really think that's part of the job because you just think, oh, you're left to do your own thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes you are. I mean, it is a really weird experience. Sometimes you are, but then other times, especially when there's an Ofsted thing coming up, you will mm-hmm. find the school mm-hmm. will suddenly go, right, everyone's going to do this. And they'll be coming around yeah. and checking that you're doing that. So it's it's being aware of the sort of the pressures of you know the Ofsted pressures the the pressures of yeah. parents can put a lot of pressure onto head teachers yeah uh, the pressures of GCSEs and getting results and comparing departments with other departments um, yeah. even though you can see well German you can't compare German with art you can't compare yeah. it to yeah. physics it's a completely different sort of subject it's those sorts of things that you know, make grind you down a bit, shall we say? Yeah, but I mean, it's more like you, the actual kids teaching the kids yeah. the things that keep you going. What sort of struck me when we've been discussing it before is like the the older, more eccentric teachers. I hate the idea of them kind of being shoved out now because they don't conform to the latest management theories and things like that. Yeah, there's definitely something in that, but it's almost like the expectation is that all the teachers do things the same way, like robots, and mm. that's not right because. You know, it's got to be personality that, you know, the, the teachers that kids will remember quite often. And if you yeah. think back to the ones that we can remember, they had a bit of personality. They do things a bit differently. Yeah. They, they wouldn't necessarily just play by this set of instructions of how to teach. They'd just yeah. do it their own yeah. way because they know how they know how things work. And, you know, the thing that you found with teaching is that the fads and the sort of techniques and the, the training that we had, they, they mm-hmm. keep going around in big circles. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily say one way is hugely better than others. Uh, it yeah. just it just seems that they want to, management at schools just want to have the control. And the only way they can control it is by having these sort of ideas and mm. you know, mm. saying that you must do it this way. And it, it doesn't work like that. You can't say everyone's going to teach the same way. I'm going to move on to ask you about impressions because as you know the whole reason that podcast exists is for as an excuse for me to do some 
crap impressions. Mm. Can you tell me about your own, uh, your most famous impressions? I'm not sure how many you do actually, but I know your, your Mick Jagger is famous throughout Manchester and Lancaster and elsewhere. Where, where did that come from? Oh, don't know really. I guess, and, and just to make this plain, it's not Mick Jagger's voice. It is purely mm. dancing. Maybe I saw my brother doing it once or something. I think. Oh, that's quite fun. Okay. I know I must have seen him doing his stuff on telly and then I just sort of copied his little little moves. And then there's that infamous, uh, we had a little gathering at ours to my parents' house and uh, they were on holiday, I think. And I ended up doing my Mick Jagger in prep and smashed a light on the ceiling everywhere. So just absolutely, arm went straight through one of those sort of pendant lamp things made out of glass. It wasn't me, it was Mick, basically. It's a, it's yeah. a good excuse <laughs> to you folks. And then that has now come out at various weddings and things. I, I, there's a bit of stones on, then it will come out at the wedding. Well, it's very convenient you say it's not the voice as well, because I always think of it as the voice as well. But I suppose you're kind of, you're mouthing, you've got the lips and everything. So you are sort of expressing him saying, or, yes. you know, sort of doing his thing. The music's always on. I never do it without the music in the background, I think. <laughs> so yeah. it sounds like, I, I just look, I just become Nick. So it sounds <laughs> like I'm singing. I, that's that's yes. probably it. It is amazing to behold and um, irresistible to men, women, and children alike on the dance floor. They're drawn to your certainly your Mick Jagger. As long as you're not, you know, as long as there's nothing um, within reach that you're going to smash <laughs> over their heads. So there's not any other impressions, then, Rich. Really, I suppose you could say Yapstam and back in the day of football. That was I made a. A passable impression of, of looking like him, if not playing yeah. like him, really. Yeah, we, I, want to, I want to talk about our torpedo Chalton days a bit more. And I mm. remember we played together, didn't we, in centre defence quite a lot of the yeah. time. And yeah. um, I would hear that quite often, yeah. The opposition players saying, get get Stam, get Yap Stam. If you're up for a corner or something. Did you yeah. mind that? Well, I mean, he was obviously a United player and I'm a Liverpool <laughs> fan, so... <laughs> But yeah, it, it, it was great. He was obviously a good player, and I can see why they said I looked like him. But yeah. Yeah, obviously, playing-wise, there was no comparison at all. I think, apart from remember that penalty he took once that he booted out of the stadium. That's that, wasn't it? <laughs> that was probably like one of my penalties. <laughs> you, 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 that's that. You know, you've been too hard on yourself there, Rich. I could see many <laughs> similarities. Big Yapstam. And with your heading and much else, how how would you describe what happened with um, of of sort of parallel footballing careers? You were a founder member of Torpedo Chalton. Uh, tell the listeners sort of what what went on there. Well, back in probably what would it be ninety nine, we we joined a team. We used to play football in Chalton Park, and we joined in with these other lads playing football. And they had a team called Sporting Jackson, and right. they just asked if we want to join. Obviously mightily impressed by our footballing ability in the park or they were just completely desperate one of the two completely desperate uh completely desperate yes um so we had a season of them then i went to australia got back and within a year probably i don't know if it's straight away i think for a year after that i remember we just sat in the pub one day with botty and ben i think Mm-hmm. and maybe someone like Tom, I'm not sure, Chin mm-hmm. would be there. Yep. And we had the discussion, why don't we start a team? Uh, and we came up with the name, Torpedo Chalton. Joined the league, got some <laughs> got some shirts from a dodgy guy in a car park, short sleeve blue umbro things, looked a bit like Scotland, and then we bought a job lot of bizarre shorts, <laughs> all different sizes. <laughs> these sort of light blue shorts, we had dark blue shirts and light blue shirt shorts, I think. Yeah. Uh, so and there was always a big rush to get the the large sizes because otherwise you were stuck with these small, really yeah. tight shorts if you were very unlucky. Budgie smugglers, like little like like the that ones was, cyclists wear or something. That was Sporting Jacks when I wore oh, was that <laughs> and I had right. to wear these sort of. I don't know what you'd describe them as, really. Not cycling. Cycling shorts, maybe a bit like that. Yeah. Sort of light, lycra style things. I had to wear them. At least for some... I think I may have managed to get some shorts at some point in the game, but... Just for decency. Because yeah, it's just like, it's just yeah. like you, you know, you're up... Uh, you know, you, you're just being painted blue around the, the, the groin <laughs> and thigh area. Some of the indignities, Rich. I mean, there was lots of... Well, lots of... There was some glory and, and many indignities i'd say you enjoyed it we were in the saturday morning league yeah manchester just, saturday morning league just yeah. the weather in itself and just a, such a mix of opponents like playing 
the bakers. I remember them being a bunch of oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. a bunch of bakers. They would batter us generally. Like, then we beat them once. I remember. They're and then you'd have you'd always look forward to playing the the music college. That was more. They were more our yeah. sort of standard. Even that's, then, we rarely beat them. That's uh, certain teams you knew at least you're not going to get absolutely battered. So the high points were basically if we could at least draw a game. That was always yeah. the high point. Yeah. Uh, and the times we won games were just unbelievable. Yeah. Some of the best the best experiences ever was when we won a game. And it was so <laughs> yeah. that the celebrations would just last all afternoon. Yeah. So straight to the Trevor after the game. Straight to the Trevor. End up staying there all afternoon just because we won a game. And was... obviously the famous time we reached this, the final of the Losers' Cup. Yes. Which obviously we lost. But we, we did take an early lead. And then it all went uh, wrong. Just, did Tom score a free kick in that? That was our goal. And then yeah. me and Tom were playing centre-half. And uh-huh. something happened. I think Tom distracted me. A ball oh, okay. came over. I thought he was going to get it. He didn't. So I then completely missed it. Oh, no. And that just let someone in on through on goal. And they obviously scored. Oh, dear. I thought he was going to say he distracted you with his Elvis impersonation or something. But he... No, no, no. Yeah. He, he, I thought he was going to kick it. Oh, he didn't. No. He left it for me. I just sort of completely missed it. And then, so I think we lost three-one, maybe or something. Oh, that rings a bell. I mean, that was exciting because at least there's a crowd. Then at least there's you know there's a bit of atmosphere. I remember yeah. doing like a crunching tackle on the edge. You know, just where all the fans were drinking their lagers and uh, you know out of the can and swearing at us, and I was swearing <laughs> back and you know then running away. Um, but is that that's the game that's the game that Carl, our manager, um, filmed, isn't it? And then he, he'd never show us the film. Someone did put it up somewhere. Oh, did they? Um, oh, did they? Okay, I missed. I hardly someone. I'm sure has put it up on something, but I can't. Obviously, I'm not going to sit through watching an hour and a half of us playing football. <laughs> I mean, if we're not going to, there's no reason why we should ask anyone else to. No, so maybe, definitely. Uh, maybe on fast forward or something. Uh, yeah, it makes us look team. quicker anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> First Impressions Podcast, now on Anchor, Spotify and SoundCloud. It's coming for you wherever you are. Please follow. Thank you so much. And then you joined the Gregson cricket team when you moved to Lancaster and had the family here. And how, how does that compare? I guess you've got that camaraderie again, but with cricket this time. Yeah, it's it's a different thing because you can actually, obviously you're playing the football, you're just playing football. Whereas cricket, for quite a lot of the game, you're just sat on the side, sat around with people. Yeah. And you can just have a chat, you can just be watching the cricket, you can do the scoring and stuff. So it's a different sort of a Yeah, yeah. It's a different sort of thing. It's definitely much more laid back. You know, the the after game experience going to Gregson is always a nice thing to yeah. to round off the game. Yeah, it's different playing cricket than football. And we yeah, we said that so the Gregson is the, is both the name of the team and it's also the the, the arts and community centre here in Lancaster and the, which is a which yeah. is a pub as well. So you're a batsman and a and a bowler as well. Uh, on a team yeah. Bit like torpedo, I mean, sort of a, a mix of ages and some from Lancaster, some from elsewhere, and so on. So, the real mix, um, there is the odd 20 year old place, but I'd say the average age is probably in the 40s, yes. And then you, you will sometimes get the odd 60 year old playing. Well, yeah. no, quite regularly, we've got some 60 year olds who play. Most of the people are probably people who have played cricket in the past, yeah, stopped, never really yeah. played league cricket, I think just wanted a bit of a social side but then there are a few players involved who have you know played cricket all their lives and have played yeah. league cricket played for yeah. and played for uh, maybe like yeah, Lancaster so getting people who've had played decent level of cricket yeah so then obviously that it's very useful to have that because we do play some quite good teams mm. who if we were just a bunch of you know mediocre players <laughs> we mm. would just be absolutely battered but at yeah. least with these few players who've done a bit, we are uh, there's a chance we have a chance of getting yeah. near it or occasionally winning. It's great fun. It's just it just depends where you can play. That's the problem nowadays with cricket. It's who can you get an opposition to play against? Yeah. Uh, have you got a ground to play on? It makes it yeah. it's a lot harder than football because football there's so many places you can play football. Yeah. Whereas cricket, you need a proper pitch that's being maintained. 
and oh. there's not as much opposition around so it's just a bit trickier to find people to play against I'd say. yeah is, is there less opposition around because do you think less people play cricket as a leisure activity now or is it well yeah that's part of it but also because we are a friendly team yeah uh we play on a sunday and mm. the the league teams play on saturday and you know you're not going to get many people who'd want to play a saturday and a sunday right yes yeah so suddenly loads of players aren't going to want to do it yeah. so you are you're a bit stuck with a little group of teams that we play against uh because it is such a big it's a big undertaking to play for you know mm. one o'clock till you know you're not far off seven o'clock by the time you finished mm. you start at one it's getting that way and then you've got you know if you go to the gregson afterwards that's that's most of your sunday gone and yeah. if you're playing away yeah. you know you could be traveling an hour some of the games we're traveling now so you you're leaving at sort of 11 or something yeah. half 11 to get somewhere so your your entire day is gone yeah so it yeah it it is a, a hard game in terms of that, and that's why probably quite a few younger people maybe won't won't do it in the friendly side, mm, side of it. They'll mm. do the league cricket, but they won't do the, the friendly games. Yeah, you've been on tour a few times as well with the Gregson. Yeah, we've got a tour every year, really. And I've been on most of them, probably. You know, generally, you went to the same places. You talked <laughs> several years, so... I didn't realise so, it was you talked I just thought, I thought that was just from a... Brian Laurie sketch and that's a real place you talk to yeah yeah which is it's got a race course and the cricket ground is sort of in the middle of the race course if I remember right oh, wow cool yeah. yeah it's too late for me but what advice would you give me if um if it wasn't well it all comes down to practice for cricket I think it's getting being able to put it in the same spot when you're bowling or similar spot yeah <laughs> I can't necessarily get it in the same spot all the time but it's getting it a certain place so it's getting a run-up that's the same every time and your actions so you can you're always doing it the same way yeah and then just trying to hit a certain area of the pitch you would swing it it would just quite often just swing without me really doing much about it um <laughs> so i couldn't say no control over it i couldn't say right i'm gonna bowl an in swinger no it just it would just swing one way yeah it depends on the weather depends on the ball there's all sure, sorts yeah. of things to cricket that you've got no real understanding of mysterious yes. game Rich, I want to ask you about, um, I want to, it's a literary podcast, for goodness sake. I, I'm constantly forgetting what I would like to ask about your book recommendations, if you have any, and what, what you've been reading during the lockdown. Uh, what have I been reading during the lockdown? Well, I started off, um, yes, I, I loaned some Dove series, they were good. Uh, so just Westerns, one, two, three, probably about four books, maybe. But the first one was called Lonesome Dove, massive, I don't know, 800 pages or something. Yeah, that was by Larry Larry McMurtry, who wrote scripts for things. Last Picture Show, I think he did. Okay, um, and that was great. It was really good. It was really well written, and I got through all of them in that first bit of lockdown. I enjoyed the Sherlock Holmes, the new Sherlock Holmes, well, newish, mm. Anthony Horowitz one. That was that was good fun. Apparently, the Conan Doyle estate gave him the rights to to write mm. a new book, so mm. he produced this new book. It was really good. It just I mean, I have read the old Sherlock Holmes, but not for a long, long time. So mm. I wouldn't know if it compares that well to the originals, but yeah, I enjoyed it. That was really good. At the end of the book, he explains all the rules he had to follow and oh, just to okay. keep it in keeping with the um, original Sherlock Holmes. So it's I like see. things like no fem- well, female characters, but no love interest. Oh. There has to be no <laughs> love interest at all. How amazing. Um, Holmes can't actually take any drugs in the book. Oh. Or, or you can't describe him doing it because it never, apparently never does that. That's in oh. the actual books themselves. That's so he's followed these rules. Myth. Right. Yeah. It's, it's there because he talks about this pipe on the shelf that, mm-hmm. so, so Watson talks about knowing that Holmes does it. Yeah. Generally, there's not much description of that. So that book box, just at the end of your road, there's that little box Amazing. where you pick books up from. I've picked books up from there. Washington Black, that was good. So oh, it's about a guy, a slave, yeah. who in the West Indies sort of gets taken along by this, the, the plantation owner's brother who is trying to invent this flying machine, hot air balloon sort of thing. Wow. And he takes Washington. So Washington Black is the name of the, the slave. Yes. He gets, gets him to help him. And he sort of educates this, this slave. Right. And right. then you follow uh, Washington Black's journey, ends up back in England. And yeah, it's, 
It's a really oh, good book. Great. Master and Commander, I like that as well. Patrick O'Brien. That's a good yeah. one. I've wanted to try them for ages. Uh, so I had a go at one of them. That was really good. Did you see that Keith Richards, Keith Richards yes. was reading that in lockdown? Did you read that story? Yeah, well, that was another book I really enjoyed. It was Keith Richards' uh, autobiography. That was oh, great. Yes. yes. Yeah, I was reading that at the start of lockdown. I didn't realise, no, I don't imagine he'd like that. He's, he seems the sort of person that would enjoy that. Definitely. He said he'd watched the whole series and, and then he'd um, been watching the, the US election as well and sort of yeah. just, uh, cackling and kind <laughs> of just switching between the news coverage and then the historical literature. So it sounded like he was having quite a good time. <laughs> I think he probably was, yeah. He, I think he does. Generally, he does have a good time, I think. Well, I hope you've had a good time with Rich and me today, going back through the years. Uh, It was a longer conversation than usual, but then we've had a longer friendship than usual. And I'm glad you've stuck with us through thick and thin, as we have with each other. I'm going to leave you with a short story set in our old Chalton neighbourhood, based around a period of isolation from which Rich and others rescued me, as indeed Rich has rescued me from my tendency for reclusiveness during this accursed year. As our mutual friend Chin once reminded me, friends are those who know us, but love us anyway. I love that quote, and I feel extremely lucky to have had such good friends throughout my life. The Chatterbox The Chatterbox and I lived in opposite rooms at the top of a faded Victorian semi down a shady Chalton back street. The landlady lived somewhere on the middle floor. My room was cold and dusty and wildly expensive. I had tried to move out several times, but the landlady intimated that without my rent, she, her grown-up son, and the cats that gave the ground floor its acidic aroma would all be out on the street. The chatterbox had lived there for years and had no complaints. I knew this because whenever we met in our greased-up kitchen, he would talk to me at length about whatever was on his mind in a thick northern accent. He would sometimes act out scenes from his life and I would be worried for the other people in the scenes because although he appeared friendly and good-natured, he had a manic energy which could be unsettling. Often I had to turn away from his stubbly, scrunched-up face to look for a lost mug or squirt more cheap washing-up liquid on the burnt-out pans in the sink. Somewhere else on the middle floor lived the landlady's teenage son. Perhaps through past experience, he avoided all contact with the tenants who lived above him and exuded a certain superiority despite his youth. I don't remember ever talking to the son, but I must have done, because I recall he made his living from selling car parking spaces outside Old Trafford, that you could claim a piece of waste ground with the orange and white bollards he kept on the landing and charge fans whatever you like to park within its invented boundaries. It's odd that I can remember the pathetic scam of the landlady's son, but nothing from the hours of candid talking and reenacting that the chatterbox directed at me. I can see him now, gesticulating, confiding, putting his heart on the line. Alas, none of his hopes and dreams, confessions and regrets pierced a protective fog I wrapped around myself in those days. And yet I was already calling myself a writer, and a writer's first job is to observe and then record. The reason I took the room in the first place was the presence of a manual typewriter on the creaky desk beside my single bed. Clearly, I wasn't ready to begin. I don't remember typing a single word on that beige and brown machine. It just sat there, like everything else in that house, quietly straining for release. Nor was I ready for the chatterbox, but then I'm not sure anyone is ever ready for the chatterbox, who I saw years later, looking much the same and crossed the road to avoid. These days, I talk to everyone. If I see you at a party, I will latch on to you before you get a chance to ask where the drinks are. When you do, I will fetch us both a drink while guarding you with the narrowing eyes on my stubbly, scrunched-up face to ensure you don't escape into the clutches of a rival guest. I do not know if the people I speak to at parties remember all the interesting things I've told them. It doesn't really concern me. I just need someone to talk to, you see. I've been a listener for too long. I hope you've enjoyed today's informal chat with Rich and the poems and stories woven loosely atop our experiences. Uh, A bit like the exotic wigs some might say we need these days. No crowdfunding necessary. Bald is best. Look out for an ad for first impressions in the Christmas issue of the Manchester Review of Books. Uh, You're obviously listening. Perhaps you'll actually admit to listening after the kudos that will no doubt bring. 
If subsequently emboldened, give me a like and or follow on Instagram at the word diver. And tell your own old friends, bookends, about it. Stupid offers for publishing deals and other miscellaneous correspondence to pjhwriting at gmail.com. First Impressions is written and produced by me, Peter Humphreys. Take care of each other, spread the love, and hold your friends close. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 from bye, bye. Well, then you ruin for the thing and whatever it was, and then you haven't got any trousers on, and you're like, well, what? You're just so excited about the thing that's happening that you do another thing, and then yeah, it just keeps on and never sort of ever whatever circle ever. It's a continuous circle. Yes, that's the word.